Good morning. What a joy to be in your midst. It has been an enormous uh, privilege to be able to come to Kenya, to come back, and to be able to minister in the uh, to the college. You consistently you consistently produce quality men, and uh, this class is no exception. It's been a joy to be able to fellowship with these brothers, to learn together, to hear their, hear their questions and interaction and uh, all of that. And it's, uh, it's such, a great, such a great joy and such a great blessing. It's my privilege now to share God's word with you. And we're going to read from the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. Remember, this is a congregation that was established. We can read about it in, in Acts 16. But let's read in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this has been the word of the Lord. We're thankful for God's word, aren't we? What a great blessing and joy to be able to unite our hearts together now and our minds in a consideration of this truth. Father in heaven, Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you have granted to us the ability to know your will. Father, we pray that you would give us clear minds. We pray that you would give us open hearts, diligent spirits. This morning that as we consider your truth that we would that we would see it as yet another gracious provision from your hand. We are a desperate people and we come to you as desperate people needing to be shown uh, the, uh, how many times we can have wrong motives and desires and that our actions can manifest these. Lord, uncover these things this morning as we look into your word. And then give us a fresh glimpse 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory and all of his manifest provision for us, for we that are uh, believers are those who are in Christ. We fully participate in the joy and blessing and salvation provided in Christ. And so we rejoice in that. And we come to you as your people asking for a, a fresh work of your spirit in all of our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in <clears throat> Philippians, what a, what a joy it must have been for the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine after his foray into Philippi and as he was able to preach the gospel there in Philippi. And we, know we are reminded of, of, of uh, Lydia. We're reminded of the Philippian jailer. And God opened hearts, didn't he? And he caused individuals to see the, the need that they had, their, the greatness of their sin and, and the glory of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. So can you imagine how he felt as he, as he begins to write to this uh, group of people. The gospel message had been received, and it was bearing remarkable fruit. And so he wants that to continue. And I might draw your attention back to verse 27 of uh, chapter 1, just as, a, as a, a bit of a theme verse, perhaps for Perhaps the entire book of Philippians, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, he, he sees God's work in them and he wants to encourage that work. And so he says, let your manner of life be worthy, be commensurate, be in line with the glory of the gospel that you have received, with the beauty of the Savior that has redeemed your soul. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, whether I'm able to make a trip to you or am absent, I may hear. I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now note this, with one Mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so he, he begins then to encourage them to be one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for this faith. And, and so he begins then in chapter 2 and verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and so this, it's a logical, it's a, it's a, a, a um, connection. The Greek word is un, it means logical, there's a logical inference from all that has been said previously. And so he says he wants them to strive together, to be one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. How is this going to take place? How is this going to be accomplished? Well, he points to Christ, doesn't he? And perhaps more significantly, he points to the fact that every believer is in Christ. And so he, he draws our attention to our union with Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look for a, a few moments here at the mind of an authentic servant. What does it mean? 
And what he does here, two key thoughts define this. Two key, key thoughts. The first thought is found in verse 1. This, note the stimulus that we need. The stimulus that we need. He says, in Christ. It is the engine driving this verse. In Christ. That's the fundamental issue. It is at the heart of unity. It is an expression that, that all Christians declare that they are in Christ. It is only in Christ that they will experience true humility, true union, true oneness. And so he wants us to see then four great realities which are designed by Paul to stimulate us, to motivate us to flesh out this, this mind of an authentic servant. Notice in verse 1, in Christ's person we find encouragement. Because we are united with Christ, we find encouragement. If there is any encouragement in Christ, it means to, to draw alongside in order to encourage and to cheer. In this context, it refers to an act of emboldening another in belief in, the, in a course of action. It is an outworking of the, of the reality of union with Christ and the experiential reality of being in Christ. And given all of the blessings that come from being in Christ, justification, sanctification, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, it is easy to see how believers should be encouraged because they are in Christ. We find encouragement in Christ. Why would we not find encouragement in Christ? The living Christ, the glorious Christ, the ascended Christ, the Christ who dwells within us, strongly encourages us so that we can become encouragers of others. What a unity builder this is for us to consider because we have been encouraged in Christ, in, by being in Christ, he's, he, the implication is going to be that we are to encourage others. So in Christ's person, we find encouragement. In Christ's love, we find comfort. If any comfort from love, we are the recipients of a profound love, are we not? The Father loved and sent His Son to us. Christ loved and gave His life for us. The Holy Spirit loved and came to live within us. All this, all of this, the the glorious triune Godhead does for us. And now we are to love one another. And so this means, this word, this comfort means that which offers encouragement, especially consolation. See, this is, this is the, the kind of comfort that Paul has in mind here is not one that comes from favorable circumstances. But it's rather a love that comes from love, you see. It is sourced again by being in Christ. And so we can be reminded of 1 John 4 and verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And so biblical love, 
Biblical love, because we have been given this manifest love from God. Biblical love constrains or compels us to exhibit, to exude, to demonstrate this selfless, sacrificial, and servant spirit towards one another inside the body of Christ. It is to have a fraternal regard for one another that enables us to settle our differences and to live in unity one with another. So in Christ's person, we find encouragement. In Christ's love, we find comfort. In Christ's spirit, we find fellowship. If any participation or fellowship of uh, the spirit, it is that word, koinonia, this participation, this fellowship. It means that all true believers have been mixed together. All true believers have been mixed together with the Holy Spirit. Through baptism in the Spirit, we are joined to Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and placed judicially in the body of Christ. And so he says, just as believers have fellowship, Koinonia, fellowship in the gospel, they also have fellowship with the Spirit. He never, Paul never got over the wonder that God had given his Spirit to his people as a definitive sign that the age to come had broken into this present evil age. And Paul says to the Galatians, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before our eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me say, uh, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, it is the Spirit that indwells us. The Spirit not only indwells us individually, but the Spirit is at work amongst His people. He draws us together into one body corporately so that we can love and care for one another as we ought. But then fourthly, fourthly, as we are thinking of the four great realities that stimulate us to love one another in Christ's person, we find encouragement. In Christ's love, we find comfort. In Christ's spirit, we find fellowship. In Christ's work, we find compassion. Again, we see this from being in Christ. If any, affection and sympathy. You see, Christ loves us deeply and intensely and personally. It, the idea is affection here. And he manifests that love. It means that God, the, by affection here, Paul means the deep impulses of love and concern. We see this love, this mercy that has been granted to us in, in Christ's work. We see compassion. He has compassion on us. He had compassion upon us when he set his love upon us. Those who are so undeserving and so uh, and would, could never merit his favor in any way. And yet he had compassion upon us. He demonstrated his mercy to us. He came to us. We did not seek him. He sought us. We did not receive Christ. Christ received us. He demonstrated his mercy toward us. 
And that compassion is that which is demonstrated so warmly and so wonderfully in Christ. To such affection, he, we, we have been the recipients of. And so it is closely related to the notion of sympathy, mercy that has been given. The, 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 root, the root affection, a compassionate heart, the fruit becomes sympathy because we have compassionate hearts because we have received his mercy. All of that then engenders in us a sense of compassion towards others. All of this together feeds and fuels and encourages selfless servant and sacrificial spirit that the, the Apostle Paul is calling for in the rest of the chapter. Without understanding this, then it just becomes more effort, more work. It becomes just something else on our to-do list. But we must see that he's saying for us, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, and there is, any fellowship or participation in the Spirit, and there is, any affection and sympathy, and it is there abundantly in Christ. Now, complete my joy by being of the same mind. We have been the recipients of encouragement, comfort, fellowship, compassion. He has loved us so wonderfully. And so therefore, what we've seen is the mind, the mind, uh, um, we're looking at the mind of the authentic servant. We see the stimulus that we need. But now let's look at, on the basis of all of that, hopefully we've built the foundation here now for what comes next, because he, now we want to look at the shape that it takes. You see the shape? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see? If all of these things are understood, verse 1, all of these things are recognized, all of these things seen as being rooted in Christ and his work in us and all that he's seeking to press out of our lives as believers, then we will see us. There's a particular shape that that's going to take. And I believe that he gives to us three vital marks. Here, Do you see it? In verse 2, there is a commitment to be harmonious. A commitment to be harmonious. If, if the realities stated in verse 2 are true, then verse 2, excuse me, if the realities stated in verse 1 are true, verse 2 indicates the logical response that the Philippians should have. In other words, complete my joy. Right? That's the logical inference and the logical response. The joy that Paul speaks of here is the joy that comes from his common participation in the gospel with the Philippians. And so Paul makes this point. He wants them to be like-minded four times. Be like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. You see it? All of these things. All of these terms are full of the concept of a harmony. Be harmonious, a commitment to be harmonious. And if Christ 
lives in you. The work of Christ in your heart as a believer is that you are going to seek to be harmonious. You will not be a contrarian. You will not be one who seeks out all of the chinks in the armor of other believers. There will be a desire. There will be a passion. There will be a concern that there would be harmony in the body. And so Paul wants us to be of the same mind. Think this is, this is that, that, that harmonious spirit that is engendered from our doctrinal soundness. Thinking God's thoughts as revealed in Christ, as revealed in Scripture. See? How is this accomplished? Because the command, complete my joy here, is, is a little bit ambiguous. Paul further explains what he meant by adding, by adding, by being of the same mind. It is a more specific way of completing my joy, he says. The same mind. In effect, Paul is saying, complete my joy, be of the same mind. Another way of stating it would be, share the same mindset. Uh, the, so he, he wants them to be, he just, he just doesn't want them to be, to be uh, chums. He doesn't want them just to be harmonious based on uh, common interests. Uh, common uh, desires. He wants them to be harmonious, all of that rooted by being in Christ, all founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that unity is born not just of mere human emotion, but of a recognition of all that is common, all that believers share together. We are to be uh, harmonious, having the same Love, a shared love for God and others abounds more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Being of full accord. This is an interesting, this is an interesting phrase. He wants us to be one in soul, is what he's saying here. Uh, it's sum uh, sukas. Being of one accord, same soul. Sukas, the Greek word for soul. Together. It means literally joint soul, or sold together, or united in spirit, joined together. A shared mindset is expressed by being in full accord. It, it's, it, it's, a, it's a phrase that, again, encourages us to see the harmony that comes as a result of being in Christ. So to sum up verse 2, Paul says, I believe, I think this is a fair summary. He says, doctrinally driven by truth, one in mind. Motivationally driven by love, one in heart. Interpersonally driven by unity, one in soul. All of them affirming our commitment to be harmonious. So there's a commitment to be harmonious. If, if Christ... If you are in Christ and all of these things are true, comfort from love, encouragement of Christ, participation of the Spirit, this is what it's going to look like in your life. You will seek to be harmonious. That's what the Spirit is seeking to press out of your life. But then secondly, it's a commitment to be humble. Do you see that in verse 3? 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now that's a really easy thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> we are by nature people who want to draw attention to ourselves. We, 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 we are engaged in service and it's difficult to, re to repress the urge to not in some very creative way draw attention to others of all the sacrifices that we are making for Jesus. You see, well, that's not where the Spirit is leading. That's, that's, that's where our fallenness leads us. But the Spirit is, it says it's leading us to a commitment to be humble. Negatively, this means saying no to two vices. Do you see of them? We must say no to two vices. It's again, it's very common in Paul, right? Put off, put on, put off, put on. Saying no to two vices. We are to say no to selfish ambition. By selfish ambition, Paul refers to an attitude which only evaluates situations and circumstances in terms of how it benefits me. Right? Uh, we, we have come to use uh, the, 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 the notion of being political. <laughs> only what, only what, um, what, what contributes and only what helps me further my cause and my cause is to get reelected. To be political, you see. And so he's saying it is the same attitude that motivated some in Rome to preach Christ. Do you see it? Back in verse 17 of the letter, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says now in verse 3 of chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition. And so it is, it, 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 it is to characterize our lives as believers, but here selfish ambition characterizes a life lived without Christ rather than the Spirit. So we are to eschew, we are to shun Selfish ambition, being political in our relationships with other people, seeking to engage other people for, for personal gain, for personal aggrandizement. But then there's a second, second vice is conceit or personal vanity, rendered vain glory in the King James Version. This word refers to a vain or exaggerated self evaluation. Vain simply means empty, doesn't it? It's empty glory. When we draw attention to ourselves, when we draw attention to our works and our efforts, it's vain. It's empty. It means nothing. Right? The fourth century preacher Chrysostom said, hence it is that love waxes cold when we love the praise of men, when we are slaves to the honor which is paid by the many, for it is not possible for a man to be the slave of praise and also a true servant of Christ. Words, thoughts, deeds that are governed by selfish ambition and conceit have their source in the flesh, not in the gospel-shaped mindset that should characterize one who is in Christ, one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. So we are to say no 
to selfish ambition and conceit. Positively, this means we must say yes to the virtue of humility. You see how he says that? But in lowliness of mind. See? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We are to esteem others better than ourselves. So the antidote to these evil tendencies, to these devices, selfish ambition and conceit, lies in the cultivation, lies in the cultivation and practice of lowliness of mind which Paul uses himself in, in Acts 20 and verse 19. He, Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so he's referring to his ministry as he's speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders there. So we are, to, we are to cultivate the spirit of humility, the simplicity of Paul's language should not blind us. The simplicity of Paul's language should not blind us to the difficulty of the task. This is a very difficult. Humility contradicts, doesn't it? Humility contradicts the radical self-centeredness of our fallen natures. Uh, humility is the natural contrast to the selfish and arrogant mentality that the Christians must avoid, that they must uh, uh, shun. So we are, to, we are to cultivate humility. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. For without Him we can do nothing. Such a mindset is essential, it is vital, it is core, it is non-negotiable. This mindset is essential for the spiritual health of the church. Nothing will kill a church more quickly when you have, when you have arrogant, when you have um, a selfish ambition and conceit. Nothing will cultivate a spirit of Christ more than when we seek the benefit of others rather than the benefit of ourselves. And so Paul is explaining here what it means. We are to pursue humility. But then thirdly here, it is a commitment, it is a commitment to be harmonious, a commitment to be humble. And then third, thirdly, a commitment to be humane. Verse 4, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Paul says, he asks, each one of us is responsible for the unity of the body. Each of us is personally responsible for the unity of the body. But each of us is personally responsible to take ownership over our own spirit, our own disposition, our own attitude. Otherwise, the body will suffer grievously. We are to, we are to look out. See what he says there in verse 4? Let each of you look not, uh, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest. We are to look. To look out, literally, means to fix our eyes, to set our focus, our attention on the proper goal. And we, to scope out 
or take aim at the interests of others. When you meet with other brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship around the word or whatever, are you, are you too quick to, to raise your own um, um, experience or are you, are you wanting to talk about all of, of, of your burdens and that's all you ever want to talk about? You're not listening to them. You're not hearing from them. You're not hearing their burdens. You're not interacting with their heartbreaks and their concerns. And Paul would have us set aside our own interests in the moment and set our affections to hear the needs, to hear the heart cries of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we could set our affections on that. And seek to be a blessing. We are to take aim at the interests of others. The wrong fixation. Seeking our own. Which he says in verse 21. Facilitates a descent into the abyss. Of a concentrated egotism. Which always ends in the elimination of others. Uh, we, we are interested in others. In so much as they are interested in us. I'm often when I do premarital counseling, um, I'm, I will always ask the question of those that are engaged. Now, let me ask you this. Do you love that person because you think they love you almost as much as you love you? Some people are really taken with someone else because they they feel like, well, I think they love me almost as much as I love me. It's a wrong fixation, isn't it? Our hearts are in the wrong place. We're not seeking the interest of others. We're only interested in others in so much as there is gain for me. Authentic servants make a conscious effort to look out for the other person. So we see here all of this to say that this text gives a powerful view of how we are to arrive at gospel-centered unity in the local church. The basis of our unity is found in God's blessing in our lives and being united with Christ, verse 1. The charge to unity requires the right mindset, and the path to unity is a proper view of self and a proper view of others. Now, circling back to verse 1, what fuels all of this, the authentic mind, is that we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we are called to become like Christ. That's what he's saying, isn't it? So then, if we are called to be like Christ, then what was Christ like? Here's the model, then, of an authentic servant. Do you see it? And fundamentally, what I want to say in verses 5 through 8 is this, that the reigning sovereign becomes a suffering servant. The reigning sovereign becomes a suffering servant. What Paul demands of Christians in verses 1 to 4, Christ models for us in 5 through 8. In this passage, Christ's attitude is addressed in verse Five. And so what's happening here is that Paul builds a bridge 
between the ethical exhortation of verses 1 to 4 and, the, and this uh, him, as it has been referred to, by repeating the same key verb. Froneo, think, have a mindset. It is a command, it's an imperative, and connecting it to the person and work of Christ. He commands the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves. This is the same verb used twice in verse 2 to speak of to speak of being of the same mind and being of one mind here. Let the same kind of thinking dominate you as dominated Christ Jesus. That's his point. And so all of this, this is to be among us as believers. Paul will encourage us here. Let this mind be in you is a summons to adopt an attitude and an exhortation to carry this attitude into practice. Well, let's be specific about this in our text. How does this model unfold in this Philippians text? And I think Paul identifies three graphic steps, three graphic steps taken by Christ in his transition from reigning sovereign to suffering servant. The first graphic step is found in verses 6 and 7. Let's read it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but did himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the first graphic step is this. Being God, Christ became a man. That is absolutely astounding. Uh, being God, he was in the form of God. The pre-existent son was in the form of God. The Greek word translated here, form, is used only twice in the New Testament, both here in Philippians 2. And I believe being in the form of God, essentially it points to the glory of God, which is to say the manifest appearance of God, his visible, visible splendor. He is in the very essence God and thus shares the glory of God and experiences his own uh, manifest glory. And thus the idea is not so much the inner attributes of deity as it is the majestic splendor, the unapproachable brilliance, the visible token of all that God is in himself. It is the glory of God that we see so often manifest. He says, he did not count then, you see that in verse 6, he did not count with God that uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped. The word means to seize selfishly. To snatch violently, to clutch greedily. It is a word loaded with the potential of great selfishness. It is, it is precisely what Jesus is not. He is not selfish. And so I think what this text ultimately means in context is this, that, that Jesus does not use equality with God in the form of God. He did not regard his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. 
something to be used for his own advantage. He did not exploit the privileges of his position or employ them for his own selfish advantage. He did not treat his equality with God as an, as an excuse for self-assertion, for self-aggrandizement. Do you see? In the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the divine and pre-existent Christ did not regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid the incarnation. And so on the contrary, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Thus, the concern is with divine selflessness. God is not an acquisitive, a covetous being grasping and seizing, but a self-giving God for the sake of others. Wow. So the transition is this. What shape did this unselfish, this unself-centered disposition take? What does our text tell us? Verse 7, but made himself nothing. He made himself nothing of no reputation. So the, the sovereign God, the sovereign God becomes a suffering servant. Being God, Christ became a man. The son divested himself of the visible splendor and outward radiance of deity by clothing himself in human flesh. He did not cease to be, to be God. He remained God, but the glory of his deity was obscured and hidden by the dark lantern of his humanity, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And so the point here is for us to see that it is designed to emphasize the radical and far-reaching dimensions of his self-renunciation. What Christ was willing to do. What, what glory he was willing to divest himself of to become a servant. The second person of the Trinity made himself nothing. Not by ceasing to be God, but by becoming man. And so it's not a reduction, as J.I. Packer says. It is not a reduction of his deity, but a restraint of it. And so he becomes a servant. But look at the second graphic step. Being a man, Christ became a servant. So being God, he becomes a man. Being a man, he becomes a servant. So I mean, it's, it, it is condescension enough for this glorious second person of the Trinity to become a man, but not only does he become a man, he becomes a servant. Wow. Taking the form of a bondservant. The result of Christ's self-emptying was servant living. Christ, the, the result of Christ's self-emptying was self-servant living. It was a total exchange from sovereign to servant, master to slave, curios to doulos. Bond servants have no right, time, 
property, will of their own. This was a term of extreme abasement, the exact opposite of his lordship. The, the doulos here, the servant, was a foot washer. John 13, right? He washed the feet of his disciples. And Paul once again uses this word, the form, though he was in the form of God, he, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And so this is an amazing truth. But then there's a third graphic step. Being God, he becomes a man. Being a man, he becomes a servant. What is it we see in verse 8? Do you see in verse 8? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Wow. So God becomes a man. The man becomes a servant. Being a servant, Christ becomes a sacrifice. What an amazing truth. What Christ requires of us in verse 3, lowliness of mind, he exhibits in himself right here to make low, to humble himself, to be obedient. It's, again, that is always the visible evidence of an authentic, humble spirit. For in all true obedience, there is submission, and in all true submission, there is sacrifice and humility. But as we draw to a conclusion, he became a sacrifice. It was obedient. He became obedient even to the point of, he became, excuse me, himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his obedience is manifested in his sacrifice. But beloved here this morning, this is no ordinary obedience. This is no ordinary sacrifice because it was obedience unto death in place of the customary here uh, um, unto death. Paul uses the, another Greek participle, which means all the way unto, as far as, to the point of death. It accentuates the absoluteness, the extremity of Christ's obedience. It was an obedience all the way to death. And again, it was no ordinary death. The word cross looms large in this context, isn't it? Cross. That was the kind of obedience unto death that, that Christ demonstrated. It, it is a cross kind of a death. This was a death so loathsome that it was reserved only for the worst criminals. Crucifixion was so despised that Roman law forbade any Roman citizen to be subject to such cruel treatment. Yet the divine man, Jesus, would be put to death by being nailed to a Roman cross. This was not an ordinary death. It was a cross kind of a death. It was a humiliating death. It was a dehumanizing death. That was the kind of death. That was the kind of humility that was being put on display here. 
He submitted to having the sins of the world placed upon his shoulders. He who knew no sin became sin for his people. He suffered the full curse of the law, which is death. Romans 6, 23. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. He shed his blood and took away the sins of all whom the Father would entrust to him. John 1, 29 and John 6, 37. I submit to you that Christ is a glorious Savior. I submit to you that he is an example for us par excellence. We see here in the model, he is the model of an authentic servant. Now remember, he's saying, let this mind be in you. This is the mind that all those in Christ, all those who are in Christ, all those who have the spirit, this is, this is the spirit that is being worked out in your life and in my life. This is where he's pressing us. This is where he's moving us and directing us and striving within us to create within us is this humility, this service, this sacrifice. If the divine son of God obediently humbled himself, if he obediently humbled himself to place you and me in Christ, where does that leave our pride, our selfish demands upon others, our convenient sacrifice, which is no sacrifice at all? The gospel gloriously leads all of us out of the darkness and danger, the peril, the soul-killing uh, self-service into the glorious light of humble and sacrificial service to others. And so, we are given this example of Christ. He models for us. He displays to us the mind and the model of an authentic servant. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that he strives with me. I'm grateful that he has that promise given to each one of you as believers that this is what he wants to press out of our lives. May we, as the people of God, see the glorious Christ, see the fact that he's united us in salvation to Christ so that he can press out of our lives the beauty of Christ in all of his person. Isn't he a great savior? Is there, aren't you thankful today that he's done that work in you and that he will perform that work until the day of redemption. I wouldn't want to be anything other than to be in Christ. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for loving us so richly, so abundantly. Thank you for striving with us in our lives that we might become more like Christ. That we might be rescued from our selfish, self-centered ways. 
and that we might know the joy of authentic service, service to you and service to one another, that we might love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. We commit this now to you and our time together to you in Jesus' name. Amen.